more time. God, our hearts are humble before you. God, we know that we have failed you and others. We are sinners. Lord, that um, we um, utterly are dependent on your grace and on your um, speaking to us in your word. God, we thank you, Lord, that you um, offer anyone who uh, turns a repentant need and faith in Jesus Christ um, another chance, a second chance, a, a new start. So, God, that's all of us. We all need that. We thank you for each person here, the body of Christ. Just bless us with your word in Christ's name. Amen. So far in the book of Acts, we've seen um, just amazing things happen. We've seen a lot of people, unlikely characters, come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen Samaritans and Pharisees, the Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile named Cornelius. We looked at him last week. And these were all very unlikely people to be included as members of what would be considered a Jewish religious group. In spite of what were just misunderstandings of the Old Testament, and these guys just had some cultural prejudice, the, er- the early church was fast becoming the first and, old- and only multicultural religion on earth at the time. Now that's just very powerful to consider that, that Christianity was, was the first and only multicultural religion on earth in the ancient Near East. The passage that we're looking at this morning is really the object of our study, and we want to meditate on its content because it's very important to consider as we think about what are the just marks of a healthy church and um, ways in which we should be characterized as a church. I I think that when we look at Antioch, we're finding a church, um, and that's what this passage is about. And we can say this without exaggeration, that it was the church at Antioch that fueled the missionary endeavors of what was happening at the time. Um, we saw in our text that up until now there was just kind of pockets of conversion among basically Jewish-like people, right? We'll get to that in a second. But at Antioch, everything changes. At Antioch is when they start going to the ends of the earth and reaching other cultures and other nations um, that, weren't, um, that didn't have an inclination to Judaism, okay? It resulted in the phenomenal growth of the early church. So We want to pay attention to Antioch. We want to look at who they were, what they did, um, because it really provides for us a lot of help and direction as we consider how we're to live on mission and how we're to live life together as the church, okay? So we're going to make some notes about things that we can kind of observe in this about them, what characterized them. First, they had a global mission. This is going to be basically the, the skeleton of my message right here. The whole gospel church. The gospel who is, the, the church who is really looking at all aspects of what the gospel means, that's what I mean by whole gospel church, what, what that is, is they are first, they have a global mission. Second, they are empowered in prayer. Third, they have an informed faith. Fourth, they have hearts of compassion. And fifth, they need encouragement. Okay? So these are, these are what just basic things that we can observe from this text that were happening at Antioch. We're going to look at these things just a little bit in, in brief detail this morning so that we can learn from them and why that they're so important in our lives. <clears throat> there are pillars of a whole, rounded, healthy, complete gospel church. What, what makes us healthy and growing. We, so we, we're going to do well to just inventory our lives and ask questions about ourselves. Do I live this way? Is our church kind of getting pushed in that direction to be this kind of church, to not neglect some of these things for other ones of these things. So let's first look at the whole gospel church as a global mission. Up until now, the people that were coming to faith in Jesus Christ had a pre-existing 
monotheistic faith informed by Judaism. Every single person we've looked at up until this point had a, had a Judaistic worldview, okay? Um, even though it would have been unprecedented to include these people like Samaritans and Ethiopian eunuchs into as equal members the community of the church, that would have been unprecedented in, a, in the Jewish community at the time. They still, though, shared a common Jewish faith. <clears throat> but now, so you, you understand what I mean by this. So all of these people were God-fearers. If they were not Jewish, um, if they were not Jewish itself, they were at least God-fearers. So that meant that they went to synagogue, they believed the Old Testament. So even the, like the, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, they had that worldview. But now we see it going past these kinds of people to the Greeks. And we see this in verses 19 and 20. Now those who had been scattered spread the word among the Jews, <clears throat> or Jewish-like people. Some of them, but some of them went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So to add insult to injury, the early church had the nerve to not only accept as equal members people like Samaritans and eunuchs, but now they were going to pagans and including them into their group. The result of this preaching to the Greeks is seen in chapter 13 of Acts. And it contained a variety of ethnicities and nations and classes. So let me just read this real quick. This is verse 1 of Acts 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So he gives a list of people that were leaders at the church of Antioch. Barnabas was a bicultural Jew. Simeon was a black African. Um, that's what Niger means. He was a black African. He was, he was completely pagan. Lucius of Cyrene was from North Ar Africa. He was probably Arabic. Uh, Menaean was brought up with Herod, which, you know, he, he was the upper class. He had some money and some, um, some, some education. Saul was a Jewish academic. So you have this kind of like rainbow of different kinds of people from different nations that had a different religion, all of them, all together. So in Antioch, for the first time, we see followers of Christ called Christians, right? And that's, that's important because we see this in our text. Verse 26 reads, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, if you don't know much about the culture at the time, you might just kind of not really think that that's too big a deal. But in the ancient Near East, a person's religion was assumed based on their nationality. So if you were Greek, you assumed what their religion was. You were a Greek pagan polytheistic believed in the Greek pantheon, right? <clears throat> if you were Roman, similar thing. Polytheistic, they had their own version of the Greek pantheon made into a Roman one. If you were Jewish... You believed in the one Lord Yahweh. So they didn't have like catchy names for their religions. They just said, we're from here, and the religion was assumed, you see? But now there's no nation or race to associate with the Christian faith because they're from all over the place. So the, the ancient Near East decides, what do we call these people? Well, let's call them Christians because they follow Jesus. It was very odd for their thinking at the time. Part of the heart of the Christian church what, what do we conclude about this? That there is a global mission. That every, every race, every gender, every class um, is 
we are to go to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, we, so as Christians, we shouldn't be racists. We shouldn't show, show favoritism to people who are wealthy or poor or athletic or not athletic. The brilliance or the, you know, average people like us <laughs> or me. You're, you guys are brilliant. Uh, the gospel is for everybody. For anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ as a repentant sinner. And we talked a little bit about that last week. So, the whole church, the whole gospel church, has a global mission. And it is not, it does, it is not racist, it does not show favoritism, and it is impartial. Number two, the whole gospel church is empowered in prayer. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 3 give us a little commentary about how they were selecting their leaders at Antioch in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 3, it says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, prayer is assumed in fasting, by the way, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, for, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and sent them off. Now this is incredibly important and something that we really should not miss. Saul and Barnabas were the first intentional and fully supported global missionaries in the Christian church. Antioch started praying. God showed up and said, all right, I want you to put your hands on Saul and Barnabas and they're going to be sent to the ends of the earth. Okay? They were commissioned as partners to take the gospel to the nations and much of the rest of Acts records their missionary work together. The rest of Acts is pretty much about, um, pretty much about the Apostle Paul, but um, some with, Paul, with Barnabas and some with Silas. The way in which they vetted these leaders was through the word of God in prayer. Now, that's very, very important. We can't miss this. The word of God instructed the church to select men of character, men who had theological competence. We see them in Acts chapter 11, teaching multitudes of people so they had theological competence they had character they had teaching gifts but what was fundamental was the spirit's leading realized through fasting and prayer they didn't just say okay who's the smartest person in the room and the best teacher let's get them and send them they the holy spirit revealed this to them through their action of prayer prayer provided direction in vetting leaders but also it paved the way for fruitful ministry. John Wesley, one of the most powerful preachers in church history, he said this, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. Just let that roll around in your brain for a second. God does nothing but an answer to prayer. And even they who have been converted to God that have not prayed for it themselves were not converted without the prayers of others. Amazing. Prayer is central. It is integral, integral to how God grows his kingdom on this earth and how God anoints and selects different leaders for the work of the ministry. Wesley also said, I continue to dream and pray about a revival of holiness in our day that moves, that moves faith in mission, creates authentic community in which each person, in which each person can be unleashed through the power of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. 
Now, that, that, I just love that. Like, I want to plaster that on our wall somewhere. Because I just think of us. I think of our church. That we should continue to dream and pray about a revival of holiness in our own hearts, in our own congregation, that moves us to mission, to live an awesome, authentic community with each other, and unleashes us through the power of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions, that's to grow His kingdom on earth. We need to pray for that, friends. We need to have that on our lips. The early church and its power and fruit is an example of a prayer like that being answered by God. What you see in the early church is that prayer happening, that prayer being answered. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a famous preacher. In around the 1950s, he preached in England. Um, he, when referring to times of just kind of great spiritual awakening, he had these wise words to discover what's our part in that. When God just kind of really does a really amazing work, what's our part? What do we do to, to set it up? You know, how do we set up the pins, so to speak? He said this, we build the altar, God brings the fire. We build the altar, God brings the fire. In other words, the church has the responsibility to be faithful in character, to be faithful in compassion, to preach the gospel, and to pray. That's the altar. That's how we build the altar. That faithful building of the altar is the way in which God shows up and does amazing work in our own hearts and in our own communities. We build the altar. God builds the fire. That's how we build it. It's through that altar that God brings this revival of religion, this awakening into man's heart, sometimes small, sometimes large. You know, sometimes God doesn't bring a whole lot of fire on that altar. Sometimes a, a church can be really faithful, and they, they have a little fruit. And other times, a church can be really faithful, and, and they have amazing fruit. Other times, God brings little, sometimes God brings little fire. Sometimes he brings great in, infernos. The problem here, you say, well, wh why, why are we, like, if we're the, the little fire church, why? What, what are we doing wrong, right? That's the kind of, like, the question of the day. The problem lies not in our techniques. The problem lies not in our personal charisma or marketing schemes or our business savvy. That is not how the kingdom of God grows. As a matter of fact, if we are faithfully building the altar, there is no problem. We aren't doing anything wrong. It is simply God's will to bring either small or great times of refreshing. Did you hear that? It is either, it is simply God's will to bring either small or great times of refreshing. So we stay faithful and God brings the fire. Amen? We got to remember that. The gospel church should fervent, this is the conclusion. If that's true, if God brings the fire, we need to do something. We need to be faithful. But, the, the, but what we really need to do, aside from that, is we need to pray. The gospel church should fervently pray that God would grant us these great times of refreshing. We need to beg him for it. We need to call out to him for it. And a lot of times, I want to be clear on this, a time of refreshing, great spiritual awakening. A lot of times what we can do is we can think, what I mean by that is a lot of people around us are getting saved. It, it, that definitely is a part of it, but you know what the first part of it is? You coming alive. The holiness of God, the life of Christ in you changing your life in a completely different and radical way. That's what it means. 
when that happens to the church, when that happens to the people of God corporately, it almost always leads to conversions of people around us, people coming to know that Jesus is Lord. Your spiritual life is so critical. Your health, your love for Jesus, your relationship with him. So we need to pray. We need to build the altar. Consider Moses' prayer in Numbers chapter 14. In accordance with your great love, Moses said, God is about to judge Israel for just doing some really dumb things. That's my summary, okay? In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as if you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt up, up until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them, forgiven them as you have asked. When we pray for God to rescue people, for God to rescue us, he does. He shows up. Friends, we need to pray that God would relent from pouring down his just anger and rescue people without Christ and without hope. That's number two. Number three, the whole gospel church has an informed faith. The whole gospel church has an informed faith. And we see this in Acts 11 in our text, verse 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The church has to have a teaching instrument in it to develop our theological competence. All of us, every single one of us. And another way that we could say this is that the whole gospel church makes disciples, right? Those Greeks who had come to faith in Jesus, now part of the church of Antioch, were being intentionally taught the scriptures. They were being taught the credo, the creeds of Christianity. What is the doctrine? What is, what is Christianity? And they were also being modeled the life, what, is, what it means to live as a Christian, How do these doctrines affect our lives and our worship and our devotion and our holiness? Now, this is really, really important in our day because there are a lot of people that aren't yet Christians that assume that faith, how many people have heard this, is believing something you don't really know is true, right? Like that's kind of like the common notion of what, you just kind of hope it is. You wish it. It's like wishful thinking. That's just the stereotype of people with faith. Now, a harder caricature, a less kind one, is that we leave our brains at the front door. Right? Have you guys ever heard this remark? And I can't say that maybe some people don't do that. Maybe there are some people that do that. Um, But it's not supposed to be that way. That is not what Christianity is. Over and over again in Scripture, there are reasons for the faith Scripture is compelling, speaking to our reason to show us that this isn't ridiculous, okay? <clears throat> and we see this over and over again in the Bible in a few different forms. I think, can I have my, my water, Karina? I left it right next to you. <clears throat> Don't drink coffee before you preach. It's a bad idea. <laughs> the Bible does this <clears throat> in a few different ways over and over in Scripture. That shows that there are reasons, tries to appeal with our reason to show us that that Christianity is reasonable. The first thing that it gives us is supernatural authentication. 
It's proving to us that Christianity is true because of things like fulfilled prophecy, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, miraculous, the miraculous works of the prophets and apostles in Jesus. The supernatural authentication show, should show us that Christianity is true. The second is it appeals to our human reason. It says in Scripture, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. In Romans 1, it says that God is evident in the things that have been made. In Psalm 19, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. The created thing should show us, in our, it should appeal to our reason to conclude that God is there, that he is real. Right? And why, why is that basically? I, I use this kind of illustration a, a, a lot because it's, it's a little funny. <laughs> I don't have a coffee cup. You guys have coffee. You guys all went to either Sip and Dip or Dunkin' Donuts before you came here, right? And by the way, drink your coffee in here. It's okay, all right? Um, <laughs> and sometimes church, churches don't like that, and that's okay. But we have all these stains on our floor already, so it's like, just add to them. <laughs> we, you, you guys got your coffee cups? Hold them up if you got them. See, now you don't have to feel embarrassed for hiding it under the chair. All right, okay, so I'm already noticing a little bit that some of you... Um, your lid on your coffee cup is either flat or it's, Zeta's got one where it's a little up, right? There, you see it? Look at Zeta. See your little coffee cup? Now, why did they do that? Why did they do that to that coffee cup? She's got a hot one, right? They did that because if you're like me, when you're driving along the road with your hot coffee and you got the flat one with the lid open, you hit a little bump, oh, all over my pants, and they're white, and I was about to preach. Come on. So someone had the brilliant idea of saying, you know what we should do? We should take that little lid and just kind of raise it up a little bit and put a little cap on it so that if you hit a bump, it doesn't spill over you. Now, like when I look at that coffee cup <clears throat> lid, I don't think, well, it's just kind of amazing how I just found this thing in the dirt, that it, like the dirt made it, and it fits perfectly onto my coffee cup, right? Like I don't think that. I think I'm so glad that there's someone with a brain that designed this thing because it's complex. It serves a function, right? That's the, the argument in Scripture. When you look at creation, the same way that you look at anything else in life that has design and complexity, you would conclude this, this has a designer, a creator. And the Bible argues the same thing. When we look at the human eye, when we look at the sun and the planets and everything that happens all around us, that it's infinitely more complex than a coffee cup lid, shouldn't we also conclude, isn't it rational to conclude there must be a God? There must be a God. So this is what's happening in Antioch. The, the scriptures are reasoning with these new Christians to develop their faith into a reasonable one, and not just a reasonable one that, that they can defend like basic things like that there's a God, that's like the skeleton, but then they start adding flesh to this. Not, that, not just that God exists and that God is one, but the condition of what he, God has said in his word about the condition of our hearts, about heaven and hell, what God has spoken. <clears throat> so Paul and Barnabas are adding flesh to this skeleton, to this theological framework of these early Christians. Christianity is something. It's not anything. It's this. It's not that, you see? So these early Christians are being taught to have reasons for their faith, and then they clothe that like apologetic skeleton with theological flesh. Now, let me add to this something important that we can't miss. Biblical and theological development is not incidental to your growth in Christ as a Christian. What I mean by that is that you cannot grow in your faith unless you grow in your understanding and application of the Word of God. You cannot neglect Scripture and think 
that you will grow. John 17, Jesus said this, Sanctify them with truth, O Lord, your word is truth. The word sanctify, that's like the Bible word for grow in Christ, your maturity in Christ. That's how you do it, with truth, with the the applied word of God to your life, living it out. Romans chapter 12 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed by the hearing of God's word and the application of God's word to your life. And the hearing of God's word is not just on Sunday morning for 40, 45 minutes. The hearing of God's word is daily. Daily we meditate on the word of God. So friends, can I just suggest something to you? That if, if you have found yourself just walking away from the Lord, could it be that it's happened because of a neglect of scripture? Romans 12, be not conformed to this world. Why are we tempted? Why are we washed away so often and so quickly by the temptation of sin? Could it be because of the neglect of the word of God? Sustained victory over sin and temptation cannot, cannot come apart from the word of God believed and applied. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. Sustained victory over sin and temptation cannot come apart from the word of God believed and applied. You say, I don't really, you know, maybe I struggle with sin and temptation, but I also, that's not, that's kind of the least of my problems right now, Kyle. I struggle with feelings of insecurity, fear, anxiety. Friend, do you think that that's no different? That's a way of which we're being conformed to the world. Our fears, our anxieties, our sorrows, our depressions. That the word of God answers those things and transforms our minds to be God minds and not man minds. Fourth, number four, the whole gospel church has a heart of compassion. The whole gospel church has a heart of compassion. Number four. In Acts 11, uh, verses 28 through 30, we read, Agabus stood up and predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So they're in Antioch. We're going to send money to Judea for the, the church in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now I want to make some observations a little bit about generosity because that's one of the healthy components of a whole gospel church. We give our lives and our resources to the kingdom of God, to each other, for the glory of God, to people in need. Okay, I want to make some observations about this. The first thing that I kind of noticed in this is that they weren't under compulsion, they weren't guilted, and they weren't forced. How do I know this? As each one was able, they helped, right? As each one was able, they helped. My, my presumption in this is that if they weren't able, they didn't. <laughs> and they, they weren't made to feel guilty or shamed for this. Because there are more than, there's more than one way to give ourselves to people rather than financially, right? I think sometimes people give financially so that they don't have to give in other ways. They feel as if, like, I've served the church. Here's my 50 bucks. Don't leave me alone. <laughs> I did my duty. Right? But the Bible calls for a more holistic giving, a more holistic generosity. So the presumption here is that if they weren't able to give, they, they weren't forced to. It was, it was voluntary. They wanted to because it was the posture of their heart. Now we have to be careful here as Westerners because how do you, find, how do you define able? <laughs> 
as they were able to give, they did so. And I just said, you know, if they weren't able, they probably didn't or didn't give as much. Now, so, like, they weren't guilted or shamed. But here, here's what I want to encourage us to think about. As Westerners, how do we define able? As they were able to give. For some of us, we're not able to give because we lack resources, because we tie up those resources, right? So we have resources, in other words, but we're very good at tying them up into lots of different things. <clears throat> too much debt, vacationing, going out to eat a lot, fill in the blank, right? And this isn't to, to guilt people that we should be able to do these things. We, we do these things, I do those things, and I have fun doing those things. But oftentimes, we are not generous, not because we lack resources, we just simply don't want to. Let's just be honest. We, because if I do that, then I can't go on this trip or do that thing or own this bigger house, some of us just don't want to use our money generously because it's going to mean that we wouldn't be able to have the things that we want or do the things that we enjoy. And Jesus diagnosed the problem. He said, our hearts are not in heaven. If that's us, our hearts are not in heaven. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, uh, on earth. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If your heart's on earth, you're going to spend your money and spend your time and spend your energy on things of the earth. But if your heart's in heaven, you're going to be generous. Hearts in heaven are generous on earth. That's just the basic principle. That's what Jesus said. If your heart's in heaven, you're going to be generous. Not, again, not just with your money, but with everything, everything about you. So we just need to like, think about this as a church, before God, as individuals. Where's my heart? Where is my heart really? Where does it belong? Second <clears throat> thing that I notice about this, this whole generosity topic is that they assessed the need and focused their giving. The most pressing need at the time was the result of a famine. You see this? There's a million and one things that we could spend our money on, right? And a million and one things that we could be generous on. So how do we decide? How do we wade through all of the ways in which we can be, be generous? What are the most pressing needs? What has God put in our lives that we're able to address, right? That's a way that you can kind of be guided in that. This is a focused giving. They focused their giving. The most pressing need for them at the time was to, was to make sure that their brothers in Judea wouldn't die of starvation. So they knew that that was a problem. They got together, they pooled their resources, and they helped them out, and they sent them. Listen uh, to what Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. What's Paul saying? That we need to care for each other as a church, not just this church, but other churches, but also everybody, our neighbors that aren't Christians. That our obligation to sacrifice ourselves is not just insular, right? Just care for each other and make sure that, that we're okay. But, but for everybody, okay? Justin Martyr wrote this. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? He's talking about how they used to 
not be Christians and what they did with their money before. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions. Can Americans be like that? Not here, right? Those are other countries, right? We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring that wealth and possession into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used, to, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. That's, that is the magic, the supernatural power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it should do to our hearts. It should crush our hearts and then birth something amazing new. Amen? <clears throat> Christians were known... Not, not just for caring for mem- members of their own faith, but for all people, especially for their brothers and sisters in Christ. These are just, again, some observations about the generosity here. What else did they do with their money? They did this as a church group and as a, and, and as a designation. In other words, they got together, they assessed the need, they said, all right, everybody, what can we do about this? The local church should be corporately making efforts to combine resources to designate those resources for specific purposes. That's what this means, okay? To guard and to guard that process through leadership. Remember, they had Barnabas and Saul kind of overseeing this, right? This sort of assumes, by the way, let's just kind of like a footnote, that, the, that their giving to this effort was in addition to their giving to their local church. So in other words, they didn't take away from what, what was already their responsibility to care for their local church and for their elders. It was on top of it. Simply note that these believers collected the gift, helping in the way that they were able. It was kind of like a church movement. It was almost like a door offering. That's kind of how I interpret it. It wasn't taken out of the resources given to their local church. It's not to say that a local church can't take from the, the giving of its members to something like this, but that we shouldn't expect it to, okay? Now, at Refuge Church, we do this automatically, 10%. We push it aside, and from, from what, because I've always thought, if you guys give 10%, then the church should too. That's just kind of the way I tick, right? And, and you guys all kind of resonated with that right away. We're all very excited about that. So we've been doing that since the beginning, right? And, um, but my point is, though, sometimes the church proper isn't going to be able to take from, they don't have anything left. So the church itself is going to say, okay, how can we serve extra? What can we do in addition to this? You see? So this is their generous spirit. They had hearts of compassion in their whole gospel church. Number five, this is our last point. The whole gospel church needs encouragement. The whole gospel church needs encouragement. Now this one right away, you might all, like already kind of feel like, oh, this is, this is nice. This is sweet. This is an emotional devotional um, that I need this morning. And sometimes we, we need those devotionals. I don't mean to mock them. But, um, but the whole gospel church needs encouragement. I want to unpack this because this is very important and something that we can miss about the, the unique ministry of the encouragement of the church. Okay, It's a small point that the, the text makes, but nonetheless it's there and it's vital for gospel ministry. Let's read in verse 22. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch when he saw the grace of God that had been... So all of this this revival's happening, 
and Jerusalem's interested. So they said, Barnabas, go down there and see what's going on. Make sure that it's not a mess. <laughs> we need to care for these people. So Barnabas goes down there. He sees what's going on. In verse 23, when he saw what the grace of God had done, he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. And a great number of people, in addition, were brought to the Lord. Now, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement, and that's exactly what he does. That's what his gift was, to encourage. Because of his use of his gift, new believers were growing, and more people were being added to their number. The word encourage is parakaleo in Greek. Now, if you don't know this, the New Testament, uh, most of it was written in Greek. Okay? Um, parakaleo is the Greek word for encouragement. Now, if you look in Scripture... Um, to find that Greek word all over Scripture, it's translated um, differently all over the place. Sometimes it's comforter, sometimes it's advocate. Sometimes, that, that means that sometimes there are words in Greek that have like this wide semantic range. They can mean lots of different things depending on the way that you look at it. So sometimes it's really hard to nail down what's a good translation for it. Most of the time it's translated as encouragement. Okay? The word is parakaleo. It's main, made up of two parts. Kaleo means to call. It's, it's a strong word to point people to truth, to point people to vision and mission, to goal, to, to direct their lives with the, with the word of God, so to speak, to call. Para means to come alongside, right? Like parallel. To come alongside, to be sympathetic, to be with a person, near a person. It's a very intimate, it's a soft word, right? So you got two, it seems kind of contradictory. You have a very strong and a very soft word smushed together. Isn't that interesting? There's an obvious tension in this word. It's a forceful, strong word to call out involving correcting and speaking truth. There's something that you need to see here, folks. That's the kaleo portion of this. Remember the word of God, right? Sometimes that kaleo comes, we've fallen into sin, we're not doing what we should do. And the kaleo comes, we hear the word of God, the truth of the word of God. But there's also a tender part to this. To be with the person, to sympathize with the person, to be gentle, to be patient with the person. To be in their shoes, so to speak. Right? It's hard. How many people know in this room that you either know one or the other? Like, one, you know a person that has one, and you know another person has the other. And if they could just kind of come together and be like one per, whole person, that would be great. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> to encourage is, is not so tender and so soft that it only offers, like, attaboy, <laughs> pat on the back. It's okay. You're going to be all right. Right? But it's not so rough that you're simply just like a drill sergeant crap, cracking a whip. You're off. Get right. Right? And I know. I confess. I've, I've, I've been either one of these at times. In my, I'm feeling a little cowardly, so I'm just the attaboy guy. And another day, I'm just enraged and outraged. And I'm like, you all need to get right. And I'm being a jerk. Right? Um, <laughs> but this word is truth and love. It's truth and love. And this is what Barnabas had. It's not just truth. It's not just love. Keller calls this, Dr. Keller calls this a strong, tender word. So Barnabas goes down to Antioch to observe what the Lord's doing. And he's not there to do more evangelism. He's simply there to observe. He ends up encouraging the church because of what he sees. He sees and something really incredible happens. Ministry is almost put into like fifth gear, so to speak. He shows up, encourages the church, 
the church starts getting discipled, more people get saved, more people get brought into the kingdom because this man decided to encourage the church. He shows, they send missionaries, they have a one-year Bible school that they set up, many people get saved. Because Barnabas shows up and was a paraclesis, an encourager, a strong, tender presence, right? That's what he did. Friends, we can't grow in our faith unless we have people like this in our lives. We can't. Someone said, we need people who are not so cowardly that they just affirm us all the time, but not so impatient and unloving that they give advice too quickly, see, and too harshly. We need to be a paraclesis like Barnabas. You know, your mind is a spin zone. You know the no spin zone with Bill O'Reilly, right? Like, your mind is a spin zone. What do I mean by this? We are always justifying ourselves, always. We make excuses for our actions. We blame others. I mean, you name This is, we're spinning. We make a decision and we start spinning in our minds how, you know, we're not that big a deal. I'm not bad as, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as her. Well, if you knew my parents, you know, you'd, you'd you know, thank God that I'm as good as I am, right? But, you know, but then a, a person comes to us, you know, in our spinning, who is a strong, tender person. And we all know what we do with those people who are simply strong. What do we do? Simply truth, all truth, all strength. We dismiss them. We get defensive. Get out of here. It's natural. We all do it. But the person who constantly just affirms us, we never see the real problem in our lives. We never, we're, he doesn't correct our spinning, you see? So we just kind of live in this immaturity and this inability to, to get out of what our blind spots in our lives. Um, someone once said, we're all addicts. Every single person is an addict. <laughs> Let me explain to you this. This is, this is interesting and important. Um, often addicts start with denial, right? I don't have a problem. I'm okay. We deny. It's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. We're spinning, see? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, exhort, you know the word exhort is there, encourage, right? Exhort, paraclesis, exhort one another daily. All, so the church, in other words, exhort one another daily. So be a strong, gentle presence in the life of the church daily. Wow. Exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today. Why? So that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What does that mean? It's denial. We enter into sin and we spin, we deny, we justify, we start spinning. And the trick is to not turn on Bill O'Reilly because he's the no spin zone. (laughs) The trick is to have a paraclesis. So to be deceived means that we're in denial, we spin, we reject something that is wrong with us unless we have someone exhorting us, encouraging us, who are not so rough and brash that they crush us with their critique, but they're not so soft and tender that they don't put light on our darkness. You see? That's what the the deceitfulness thing is. They put light on our darkness. You know that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you know what they're called? Both of them are called in Scripture. Come on, this is is a softball. Paracletes, that's right. Encouragers. The Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ Jesus is our first paraclete. The Holy Spirit is our second. They are both our comforters, our encouragers, our paraclesis. Now, let's 
help, let, let's try to understand why this is important in helping us understand this concept. <clears throat> Jesus, so Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both our advocates, paracletes, encouragers. They're the same words used in Scripture. And how do they encourage us? What do they do? So how do we encourage each other? This is important. Well, what, did Jesus, what does Jesus do? And what does the Holy Spirit do? What is their ministry of encouragement? The Bible describes Jesus as our advocate, our encourager. You know what that is? It's a lawyer in Scripture. As our advocate, as our encourager, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God for your sin. So he's in the law court of heaven speaking, kaleoing to God the Father on our behalf. You see? He proves to God that we're forgiven by demonstrating his blood. Right? God, he's, he's arguing in the law court of, of heaven, saying, God, their sins are forgiven because of my blood. And, they are, and, and what is, where are we? We're with him. He is para with us. We are side by, we are him, he is us, you see? So Jesus is making a case. He is arguing that we are forgiven and innocent and righteous. And he is with us in the process. Jesus speaks to God for us on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, our second advocate, speaks to us on behalf of Christ. Now this is important, okay? The Holy Spirit speaks to us on behalf of Christ. This is how we are encouraged, okay? Um, the Holy Spirit, our second advocate, speaks to us in the work of the first advocate. He is exhorting us. The Holy Spirit is exhorting us, beseeching, beseeching us, kaleoing us, arguing with us in our spinning. You see? And what is he doing? He is reminding us of what Christ has done for us. He is reminding us of who we are in Christ. Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? Why do you lack faith? Why are you living in that sin? Why are you alone and lonely? Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done. You see, he's, he's arguing with us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But he's with us. He's in us. He loves us. See? John chapter 14, verse 26 but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will, will send in my name, will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything I have said. That's Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is arguing with our spinning, reminding us about who Jesus is. Isn't that incredible? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. You don't need a sexual relationship to fill a void. You don't need it. You don't need alcohol. You see, this is the, the, the Holy Spirit's calling us. Remember, remember Jesus. Remember your home. Remember your hope. Remember how he values you. He's kaleoing us. The Holy Spirit is the strong, tender model. And we each need people in our lives that are like this for each other. We need people who aren't going to be so harsh that they're going to crush us, but we need to be people that aren't going to be so sensitive that we won't just be automatically crushed no matter what's said. You see? Oh, friends, we need this in our life. Because if we don't have it, we will, be we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? We need to be encouraged. John Wesley said this. I quote him again. Bear up the hands that hang down by faith and prayer. Support the tottering knees. Storm the throne of grace. Persevere therein 
and mercy will come down. That's a way that we can be encouragers to each other. Storm the throne of grace for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are so good to us, and we love you so much. Help us to be a whole gospel church. Help, help us to be a church that has a global mission, a church that's empowered in prayer, a church that has an informed faith, a church that has a heart of compassion, and a church that encourages. Oh, God, I pray, Lord, that you would lead us, guide us, mold us, transform us. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, would you trust him? this morning, put faith in him so that he can be your advocate, that your sin can be separated as far as the east is from the west. And when the just judge demands your punishment for your sin, it will be satisfied by the blood of Jesus and separated as far as the east is from the west. If that's you, if you're putting faith in Jesus Christ right now for the first time, cry out to God, tell him that. Tell me that after church when you're done, and let's rejoice together in what the Lord has birthed in your heart this morning. God, we love you. We thank you so much for this church. Bless the rest of our worship service. In Jesus' name.